It's good to be able to welcome you all here tonight. Great to have you. Uh, we're going to continue on in Ephesians, and I'm just going to read from Ephesians 6. I'm going to read from verse 18 to verse 20. We've been looking at the armour of God, and this kind of wraps that up. It's the, the prayer at the end of Paul's teaching on the armour of God, or at least his encouragement to pray. And I'm using the ESV because it's the best one for preaching on this occasion. Jonathan will be happy. He likes it. So, yeah, so do I. It's a great version. But anyway, we read here, Paul says, having talked of the armour of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and he goes on, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given me, be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, as Paul prays for boldness in his own life, Lord, we pray for humility and openness first in our hearts to take your word and to let it really come to life and work in us and change us and transform us. And then, Lord, as we have that heart that Paul had, we pray that we'll have that same boldness to live and to speak for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On Monday evening past, I shared with the deacons my hope that as a church, we could join in with what's become a national movement called Try praying and the name gives most of it away it tells you what it's about except that this isn't just about reminding the church of the importance of prayer but then this is is developed on from this in such a way as to seek to use prayer as a means of mission in an evangelistic way and taking advantage of various statistics that tell us here's some of them that 25 million adults in the uk admit that at points in their life they pray. That 10 million report that they pray regularly, though nobody defines quite what regularly means, that half of those who pray believe that God hears their prayers. And that of people who say they are not religious, one in five pray. Now apart from the fact that I think this presents a pretty compelling picture of the totally confused state of spiritual life in the United Kingdom at the moment, apart from this, doesn't this say something about the spiritual nature that's inbuilt into us as human beings? That corrupted as it is by sin, and it certainly is, and no matter how we try to deny it, yet that, that spiritual need, that spiritual hunger within us will not be denied. It is undeniable. But having raised this possibility of us getting involved in this Try Praying initiative and getting enthusiastic, backing, by the way, of the deacons, what did I find when I started preparing for tonight? That the theme of the verses we are focusing on tonight is prayer. Now, I wish I could say that this is down and as a result of my meticulous planning and organisation. Well, that would never be true. <laughs> But there was meticulous planning, I think, in organisation, but it was all at a much higher, higher level. We are going to look 
Now, though, at what Paul teaches us about prayer from this key passage towards the end of this glorious book, this book of Ephesians, with the focus here being on how we should pray as Christians and the importance of prayer for Christians. And thinking about this during the week, I thought it would be good to have a look at just a little bit about what some of the great figures in the history of the church have had to say about the importance of prayer. Here's just a, a small selection because we'd be here all night giving quotes if I was to share uh, all of the great ones, but here they are. J.I. Packer. People who know their God are before anything else people who pray. Philip Brooks. If man is man and God is God, to live without prayer is not merely an awful thing, it is an infinitely foolish thing. John Bunyan, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. John Calvin, can't get better. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And then Karl Barth, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the world. Nothing then is more important than prayer. Let's look at what Paul seeks to teach us here about prayer. At the exhortations he makes, the example he gives us in his teaching on prayer. Beginning by looking at prayer for all. Because you know one of the things that, that truly stands out here is the, the number of times that Paul uses the word all, or an associated word or phrase. He begins in verse 18 by telling us we have to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Now let me here just share, before I go into this, just a general comment made by Sinclair Ferguson, just about praying in the context of these verses, before moving on to look at this phrase in particular. This is the, the general con comment. Prayer itself is not seen here as part of the armour of God, but it describes the manner in which the armour is to be put on and worn. It is the atmosphere in which we are to live the Christian life. It's all an all-embracing, constant characteristic. Have you got that? Prayer. Not as a ritual, not as a, a mindless routine, but as a, an expression of our total and utter dependence on God, which is the essence at the heart of all true prayer. Because without a heart like this, then everything else that Paul says here about the armour of God becomes null and void. We cannot put on the armour. We cannot use the armour as we should. We cannot live an effective, victorious Christian life without prayer. We can perhaps try and look the part. We can go through the motions, but without a heart, at heart, a heart of dependence upon God expressed in prayer, we cannot live the kind of Christian life that Paul speaks of and that is God's will for his people. And this idea of prayer as a lifestyle is, I believe, what Paul picks up here in this opening phrase 
of verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. For praying at all times obviously doesn't mean always being consciously at prayer. It doesn't mean that. It cannot mean that. That we're called to always either verbally or in thought be consciously in prayer. For not only is this impossible and impractical, it's also, I believe, potentially dangerous. If we think simply by endlessly, mechanically repeating prayers, that that's enough to please God. Because ritual, mechanical prayer, no matter how much we might do of it, just doesn't do it for God. None other than the Lord Jesus himself makes that very clear in Matthew 6. Verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to pray at all times in the Spirit? What does it mean? Well, I believe what this means is growing, developing, maturing in our relationship with God in such a way that our life is lived there in such a way that there is always a God awareness. And in particular, an awareness of our need of him, of our dependence on him. So we are always either consciously or unconsciously connected to God. And all of our life, with its crises, its times of joy and of sorrow, those moments when we need to make a decision, all of our life, is to be lived in this God context. But how do we grow and develop into this kind of quality of relationship with God? How do we do that? Well, I believe Paul points us towards this when he adds the phrase, in the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, first let me here be clear what I don't think this means. I don't think it means, as has been suggested by some, praying in tongues. I don't believe it means that because in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, when Paul speaks of tongues, he says that the mind is unfruitful. But here in Ephesians 6, 18, he urges these Christians as they pray to be alert in mind. So I believe then as, as Paul speaks here of praying in the Spirit, that he means something quite different. And the key to understanding this lies in its connection to what we find in the verse before, verse 17. It lies in the Word of God. You see, it's the Word of God. As we read God's Word, take in God's Word, and are obedient to God's Word. It's as our lives and our characters are fashioned and formed and transformed by the Word of God. It's as we submit ourselves, our minds, our thoughts, our instincts, our will, our desires to the Word of God. It's this that builds up the kind of character that increasingly will lead us to have a spiritual instinct about what God's doing and about what He wants us to do in the light of that. And it's this character this kind of godly character. It's this that will encourage God to fill us with his spirit who will then lead us to pray the prayers that God would have us pray and that he will bless. You see, it's all about relationship with God. It's really about our life being a prayer in terms of our communication with God through his word 
by his Spirit. Then Paul moves on to his second all, with all prayer and supplication. Now, it's, I think, pretty clear what Paul is calling for here. He's calling for our prayer to be comprehensive and yet for it to be specific. And this, I think, has certainly got something to say to Christians and to the church in our day. We need to seek to widen our thinking and enrich our prayer. We need to pray more comprehensively. Now, many of us, I'm sure, are aware of the old prayer formula that was popular a while ago. Acts, A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, and S, supplication. Now, it doesn't maybe say it all, and, you know, we might be well aware of that formula, but I wonder how many of us actually put it into practice. I wonder, because too much of our prayer, to me at times, seems to be one-dimensional. And I point the finger at myself here, by the way. It's all about our needs. It's all about the needs of others. And that's it. It finishes there. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong at all with bringing legitimate needs before the Lord. Far from it. It's a good thing to do. But, you see, I think these needs have to be further on in our prayers. They need to emerge from richer soil if these prayers are to be effective. So we've got to take time then just to read those passages, meditate on them, those passages in the Bible that, that speak of God only and of his glory. We need to take time in these passages. We need to seek to soak them in, maybe not every day, but far more often than most of us than is probably the case for us. And then you see, enriched in that way, we can pray prayers of adoration, prayers of worship and adoration, that aren't just a matter of piling up words and phrases, but prayers that are born out of a sense of being in the presence of a glorious, majestic and holy God. We need to take time to do this individually and for those of us who lead worship I would say this has to be the place that we're coming from before we seek to lead God's presence in turn God's people in turn into his presence you know I love a lot of the the modern worship songs that are around at the moment not all of them don't love them all I never liked all of the old ones either I don't think anybody did we only sang a very small portion of them but I do like a lot of what goes on in modern worship I've got to say, I do worry sometimes that worship is being reduced to being about music and singing alone. And I would say music and singing are an incredibly important part of worship, but they are not all there is to it. Prayer, praying with God's people, for God's people, leading his people into his presence in prayer. This should be a key part in our worship. It should be. I believe that we leaders need to have a sense of God's presence and glory. We have to have that if we're effectively to lead his people into his presence. And I want to say, by the way, there is nothing wrong when we are in God's presence, when we take that time, there is nothing wrong with thinking through what we want to say then, the words and phrases that we want to use in order to lead his people 
in this kind of way. Thoughtful worship is not something, I believe, to be ashamed of. And you see, then it's, it's out of this that comes deep and meaningful confession and true thanksgiving. For it's as we realize more and more the greatness and the glory of the Lord. It's as we do this. Then what can, can that do but make us aware of our sin, of our need, and bring us to confession? And then lead us on as it should to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that because of Jesus and his sacrifice, because of him, we and all who come to him in faith are forgiven. And we are then blessed by God in so many words. The word, though, that's translated here, supplication, I think it's this that brings an extra dimension to what Paul is teaching at this point about prayer. For you see, the basic meaning of that word is to plead. It's to beg. Johannes Lau, he defines this word like this. It is that which is asked for with urgency, based on presumed need. Request, plea, prayer. So you see, while there is a need for a, a wide and all-embracing dimension to prayer, yet there's also a place for focus. There's a place for being specific in prayer. I mean, I believe that if we are going to be serious in praying for the needs of people, of communities, our community, of our nation and of our world, if we're going to be serious about this, then we need to take time to learn, to research, and then to pray through whatever those needs are. That is to be part of our worship. Paul's third all in relation to prayer is again in verse 18. He says, keep alert with all perseverance. Now Paul's exhortation here to, to keep alert means fundamentally to stay awake, to be on your guard. And it was used most commonly in the context of first century Jewish society in relation to shepherds. And in particular to, to their need to, to look after their sheep, to take care during those long watches of the night when wild animals roamed on the lookout for easy prayer. But then in, in the New Testament, the need for Christians to be alert is usually found in regard to the either the second coming of Jesus, that Christians need to seek to always be ready, always alert, always prepared by the way they're living for that coming. And then it's also used in relation to temptation and to the attack of the devil. The Christians need to always be on their guard, knowing that the evil one is always ready, always looking for an opportunity when he sees one, he'll take it to hit out against us. And of course, all of this follows on very fittingly from what Paul's just been saying in the verses previous about the armour of God. That if we are to effectively put on this armour, and if we are to use this armour as God intends it to be used, then we need to be people of prayer, of real, true, New Testament quality prayer. That is prayer. It's not just a good thing or a nice thing to do. If we can remember and fit it in. 
prayer that certainly isn't a meaningless routine, a ritual, a tradition that we go through. But true prayer, real prayer, prayer that is about engaging with God, engaging with our life, our needs, our church and community, our world needs. And prayer, we're in this as part of this. We take our stand against the forces of evil and all that stands against God. That's the prayer we're called to. Prayer that is spiritual warfare. And William Cowper once wrote, Prayer makes the Christian's armour bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian upon his knees. And when Paul adds to this, keep alert with all perseverance. Well, the particular word that here's translated perseverance, it carries the idea of to continue to do something with intense effort. To devote oneself to, to keep on, to persist obstinately in. And what this underlines again, I, I believe here, is that real prayer, this kind of warfare prayer that God calls us to, that this is work. That this is not easy. It's not natural. It goes against our instincts by nature. And the devil will use every weapon in his armory to keep us from this kind of prayer. And what God though wants from us, what God asks of us, and what God will enable us to do as we seek him is to keep on praying, never to give up. And when he lays a burden on us in prayer for a person or a situation, not to lay that burden down until God either answers that prayer or clearly redirects us. Paul's final all here is a call to pray for all the saints. To pray for all of God's people. So we're not just to pray for ourselves then. We're not just to pray for those who are closest to us. Even for our church community. But Paul says to us and calls us here to pray for all the saints in our nation. But even to the very ends and corners of the earth. You see what this is saying is that as Christians, God doesn't want us to be insular, inward looking self-centered people that kind of attitude that kind of outlook that stands in total opposition to the God who created the world who loves this world and who gave himself particularly for his church in a totally selfless way so God calls his people to be concerned about his church he wants us to learn what's going on in the church worldwide and then he wants us to pray about it. He wants us to give thanks where he is blessing and to ask him to work in power according to his will wherever Satan is attacking. Paul encourages then prayer for all. But moving on, he also asks for prayer for me. Prayer for himself. Verse 19 and 20, he says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me that I may fearlessly, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. 
Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Now, you know, there might be, be some who kind of find it difficult to imagine Chris, a Christian like the great Apostle Paul asking for prayer. We might have, I don't know, the kind of mindset that says that the real Christian, the truly mature Christian, should be able to face any challenge, any set of circumstances, without any sense of need. Totally unruffled, untroubled. If we are truly trusted in the Lord and if we're really living by faith. We might have that kind of mindset, but I have to say that I believe that this is a dangerous modern distortion of Christianity. The idea that a good Christian, a real Christian, living by faith should have no real problems, no issues, no struggles. That's just not so. It's not true to the Bible. That is a dangerous falsehood. For while in Christ God does pour his spiritual resources into our life and he does transform us and work in us and through us in so many ways, yet we always remember that this is in the context of a sinful world where we face Satan's constant attacks and while we still have a weak and frail sinful body. But let me tell you, while I don't find it difficult to imagine a Christian like Paul asking for prayer, I don't, but, but rather what amazes me here is what Paul asks for in prayer. Because remember, he wrote Ephesians while he was held prisoner by the Romans. When probably Nero was Caesar, a megalomaniac whose persecution and cruelty of Christians towards Christians defies description. And Paul is held here in his hands. He's under his power. And yet, look at this. There is not one word in this prayer about his circumstances. Rather, what Paul asks for what matters for Paul is that whatever his circumstances might be, that he may be able to share the gospel fearlessly. And in the, the way that Paul expresses himself, there are, are two requests within this that, that he makes. First, that he might be able to, to share the gospel and share Christ with clarity. That he may be able to share the gospel clearly. That, I believe, is what he's getting at when he asks. That words might be given me in opening my mouth. And he prays that he might be given courage. That he might be given courage. Courage to speak the truth, no matter who his audience might be. No matter what their expected response might be. To do so, of course, lovingly and graciously and sensitively, not to cause offence unnecessarily. No, I'm sure, because remember, after all, this is the Paul who in Ephesians 4.15 counsels God's people to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. But still, think of this. Having the courage and seeking the courage to stand before Caesar and to stand before all the powers of Rome to preach Christ knowing that they will see this undoubtedly as an attack on their imperial power, on their society, their morality, on their gods, and on their whole way of life. 
this is what Paul asked for. And I've said, I've got to tell you, I've sometimes had to preach on controversial subjects, and I've sometimes had to, to say things that are very much out of step with current opinion. I won't be stopping doing that, but I've always tried to do that as lovingly as possible. But I've known when I've been doing this that it might not only be, be non-Christians who take offence, but Christians too. As God's words challenge them, as the word pokes at their consciences, as it reveals their sin and their failures. And I'm aware that instead of responding in repentance, that their heart pride could so easily lead to anger and to all that comes with that. And I've sometimes had to preach God's word knowing that this is a possibility, that people could be offended, that all sorts of things could come from this, and it is a daunting thought. But listen, that is absolutely nothing in comparison to what Paul faced here. And he didn't ask to be rescued from this. Rather, as we've said, he asked for clarity. He asked for courage that he might preach the gospel boldly. In fact, far from asking to be rescued from this, Paul, I think to the contrary, sees it as a privilege that God could trust him and use him in this kind of way. That, that's what he's saying, I believe, when he says that he is an ambassador in chains. He's saying that this is a high calling that's been given to him by Christ. So you see, when Paul prays for all, he means all, including himself. We all need prayer. Living in this world that we do, facing the opposition we face, being the people we are, we all need prayer. And we all need to learn to pray for one another. You know, at one point, this incredibly influential ministry in Victorian Britain and London, Charles Spurgeon was asked the question, what is the secret of your ministry? This incredibly gifted man, this wonderful orator, what is the secret of your ministry? Do you know what his reply was? My people pray for me. If similarly, we are going to know God's blessing as individuals and as a church, then we need to become more and more a people who pray, who truly pray, who engage with God, who pray for ourselves, for our community, for our church, for our nation, for our world. If we are going to be all that God wants us to be, rather than let Satan steal that from us, then we need to seek God and ask him to give us a heart for prayer and then to sustain us in that. Let's come before God now. Father, we want to thank you for your word, your word that encourages us in so many ways as we think of just what we are in Jesus and how you want to bless us. And yet a word that challenges us. A word that brings us again in repentance. A word that brings us again to that place where we ask, Lord, change me. I don't look to anyone else. I don't look to anybody or anything else but me, my heart. Lord, change my heart. Give me a hunger for you. Give me a desire for you. 
Give me the discipline that enables me to keep on seeking after you and living for you, no matter how challenging life might be. Lord, make us into that kind of church. Make us into those kind of Christians. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.